Hey, well, last night we talked about parables. We talked about what are parables. We talked about why did Jesus tell parables. We said that parables were these stories that Jesus told that were simple, real-life stories that preached an eternal truth. And I want you to take yourself back to where Jesus was when he told these parables. He was on a hillside. He was by a lake, a big lake. They called it the Sea of Galilee. It's this big lake. And he's on this hillside. It's not snowing. It's not cold. It's not 29 degrees. Not playing soccer. None of that. But he's on this hillside. And he's preaching this sermon. He's telling this parable. He told this parable like this, that there was a guy who went out to sow seed. He throws the seed all over. And some of the seed lands on this rocky path, which we talked about last night, which was Jesus's way of describing a person who wanted to reject his word. People who rejected his word. That was last night, that rocky path. Now, so there's also some seed that fell on soil with rock, right? And it's kind of confusing. You might not um, understand what that means, but if you look up here, I want you to kind of see this. There's some rocks in the soil, but if you were going to plant some stuff, you would clear all the big rocks out. So the rocky soil is not necessarily um, a soil and rock salad, if you think about it that way. A little bit of soil, a little bit of salad, you know, you get some rocks in there. That's not what's really happening. The idea is that it's a shallow soil. So that's what we're going to refer to that as from, from now on, the shallow soil, where there's a little bit of soil, but underneath there's this rock bed. So if the roots try to go down, they're going to get stuck because they're going to hit that rock bed underneath the soil and they're going to get caught. So that's that second soil. He said, some guys, they throw their seed and it lands there. So as in the seed, it actually does take root. And when it does, it takes root, but the roots hit that rock bed, and all that happens is there's growth northward, not southward. There's growth with the, the green, leafy part of this plant, but not down deep. And what happens is it's a weak plant. So that other soil that they throw it to is this soil that has thorns in it. Right? I know this kind of looks like there's sticks and thorns, but you throw seed in a place where there's weeds that grow up next to the plant. And there's thorns, and it comes and kind of wraps around, you can imagine. So that when it tries to grow up, it gets all choked out. Okay. Then he says, some of the seed landed on good soil, where the seed went down into the ground. It gets watered, it gets sunlight, it gets all those things. The roots go down, the leaves come up, and it grows, and it becomes strong and tested over time. We're going to talk about soils number two and number three tonight. We're not even going to get to number four. We're going to get to that tomorrow. But soils number two and soils number three. This first soil we're going to talk about tonight, which is actually the second soil, is a shallow soil. They call it the rocky soil, but I want you to think of it as shallow soil. That's really what's going on here. It's rocky in that there's a rock bed underneath, not that it's a rock and soil salad, which, by the way, if you're ever going to serve a salad, don't serve a rock and soil salad because that does not taste good. That sounds worse than pickles. I was talking to some of you about pickles today. Pickles are gross. Just going to say that. I'm just going to put my opinion out there. A rock and soil salad would taste even worse. I'd rather have a pickle than a rock and soil salad. Anyway, so soil number three is the thorny soil, right? Which means that when the stuff starts growing up, there's weeds, there's thorns, there's things that kind of wrap around that little precious little leaf that's going on that little bud, and it wraps around it, and it chokes it out. Both of these soils, Jesus is trying to represent as non-Christians, okay? Both of these soils are not real Christians. I want you to write this down. For the big idea. You see that big idea at the top? I want you to understand something. 
What Jesus is trying to say through this part of the parable is something that's really important for you to get. It's this. I want you to understand the difference between positive responses to the gospel and the right responsible. You understand the difference between positive and the right response. You can have a positive response to the gospel. That doesn't mean it's the right response. The right response certainly is a positive response to the gospel, but not all positive responses are the right response. If I told you, that there was a virus going around and you had to be safe, right? And if I said that your roommate or your person in your cabin had it, right? Imagine that. That'd be crazy. Um, you could hear it and you could say, wow, that's a big deal. That's a, that's a huge problem. Wow. I, yeah, I don't want to get sick. And then you you go and you start licking their, their, their furniture, right? You can go start taking their toothbrush and use their toothbrush. It's like, well, yeah, you had a positive response, but it wasn't positive enough, right? It was a positive response, and you were like, oh, man, that's, that's serious. But then you forget about it. You don't do anything about it. Right? That's kind of what's happening in soil number two and soil number three. These people hear the gospel. They, they see that it's a big deal. And it says in both of these cases, they receive the word with joy. But what happens is it doesn't take root in their heart. It goes down a little bit, and then it gets choked out. Right? These two responses are both positive. Both of these people, by the way, if you talk to them about church, you talk to them about the Bible, you know what they'd say? I want to hear some more about that. I want to go to church. I love going to church. I love listening to God's word. And you might think, well, I I think I'm a Christian. I think I'm the good soil um, because I like going to church or because I like reading the Bible or because I like knowing more about what God's word has to say. That's great. And I think that's, that's a positive response, but that doesn't mean it's the right response. There are thousands of people, millions of people throughout history who wanted to know about the Bible, who loved going to church, who didn't end up becoming Christians. People that I knew, same way. They liked going to church. They served. They did all these great things. But guess what? They weren't real Christians because their heart wasn't right. And that's what I want you to check tonight. I want you to understand the difference between the positive responses and the right responses. Because some of you might be thinking, "I I think I'm a Christian because I've heard the gospel I've prayed a prayer, I've gone to church, I like going to church, and everything's going good, right? That's a positive response, and I think that's great. You're not soil number one, right? Soil number one says, I don't need this, I don't want to have anything to do with this, right? You're soil number two, three, or four. But the problem is, only soil number four represents the real Christians. Only people in soil number four are going to heaven when they die. Only soil number four. People in soil number two are not going to go to heaven when they die. They're going to be punished by God. Like, that's how serious this is. So I want you to take this seriously, and I want you to think, first of all, about this, this shallow soil. If you have your Bible, I want us to turn to, officially open up your Bibles to Matthew chapter 13. Matthew 13. That's where we were last night. We're going to continue there. Matthew 13. I want to turn all the way to verse 20. I want us to just jump in. I know we've already kind of covered the parable again, so y'all are refreshed, but I want you to think through verse 20 and 21. They're going to describe soil number two. People who hear the word, they're excited about it, but it doesn't really take root. I'll start reading in verse 18. It says, hear then the parable of the sower. When anyone hears the word of the kingdom and does not understand it, the evil one comes and snatches away what has been sown in his heart. This is what has been sown among the path. So that's what we talked about last night. People who say, I don't want to respond. I'll become a Christian when I'm older. Soil number two says, I think I'm a real Christian. I think I'm saved. Look at what it says. Verse 20. As for what was sown on the rocky ground, that's the shallow soil, 
This is the one who hears the word and immediately receives it with joy. They hear a sermon, they go to revival, and they say, I want to be a Christian. I want that. You've been talking about that. I, I want that. And these people make professions of faith. They talk to their leader. They talk to their parents. They say, I'm a Christian now. I repented of my sins. I put my faith in Christ. We're still working with this group. It says what happens later for this group, right? That response can happen for soils two, three, or four, right? What I just described. Someone saying, I, I repented of my sins. Someone going home, telling their leader, telling their, their, their parent. That can be soil number two, three, or four. Look what it says now. It says they immediately receive it with joy, yet he has no root in himself. Like this little plant that I saw that I thought was really sad on the internet. You see this? Um, looks like this thing's getting scorched by the heat. Looks like it's about to die. It's kind of built on one of those little poles, so I don't know. Maybe it won't. But anyway, it's get, it looked to me like this is drying up and about to die. It's got this scorchedness to it. Now look what it says. It says he has no root, but endures for a while. He comes to church, excited about TNN, goes to small groups, all that stuff. But when tribulation or persecution arises on account of the word, when people start to say, oh, man, I don't want to be your friend anymore. You're saying you're a Christian? I don't want to be your friend anymore. Right? Once that starts to happen, and when people at school start to make fun of you for being a Christian, and when the world starts to make fun of you on your social media and they comment things, ah, oh, you're such a lame Christian, right? Once that starts to happen, that's tribulation, that's persecution, or it could even be worse. People could start to say, I'm going to hurt Christians, right? And back in their day, that happened. So imagine you've got these people who come home from camp, they profess faith, they say, I'm, a, I'm saved, I'm a Christian, right? But then when things start to get hard, when things aren't as easy as they were at camp, when you kind of, as we say, step out of the, the Christian bubble and you're in the world and it's a little bit harder because you don't have all the safeguards in place and there's pressure, Look what it says. It says, immediately he falls away. Notice the repetition of the word immediately. It says he immediately receives it with joy, and then he immediately falls away. It's a wishy-washy type of personality. Someone who is excited about it, and then when their excitement's gone, ah, I'll be excited about another thing. That's how I get with, have I told you? That's how I get with my golf clubs. Have I told you that? No, no, okay. I sold men's Bible study. So um, I trade in my golf clubs all the time, all the time. Because there's a 90-day return policy at the place that I buy my golf clubs from. So, like, I can just trade them in and out, and I can get whatever I want. I'm super fickle. That's a word for you. You can write that fickle. Um, that word means changes their mind a lot. I'm fickle right, with that. Flip-flop, right? Maybe you're like that in some ways. You really like this band, then you really like this band. Right? You like this clothes, and then a year later, you're like, oh, mom, that's so, like, 2019. Like, dude, no, I can't. Have you noticed that the middle part has come back? The middle part. <laughs> They're all freaking out. Like, I love the middle part. I was just talking to the band last night how all the band members have the middle part. And I've never, and me and Nathan, like none of us have the middle part. It's like, this is ridiculous. This is such an age gap. It was not cool. Back, back when I was in high school, the middle part meant you're a complete dork. Um, now it's like the cool guy. Anyway, uh, Fickle. Things change, right? You get excited about it, then you're not excited about it. Right? Here's the deal. That's all fine and good. I don't care about hairstyles. It doesn't matter, right? I don't care about trading in golf clubs. It's not a big deal. But what we're talking about right here, Jesus says, I want you all in. And the people who are the shallow soil are people who are in until it's hard. They're in 
until people don't like them, and then they'll, they'll just kind of go with the flow. Right? They're chameleons, right? Have you ever been called a chameleon? Right? You're one way at church, you're another way at school. You're one way at home with your parents and the words you use, and then the words you use on your sports team and in the dugout are totally different. You're a chameleon. You're one way here, another way here. That's the kind of person that Jesus is describing here. He says two things, tribulation and persecution. Tribulation and persecution. Those things are like the sun that beats down on this little plant that actually has a lot of leafiness to it. Right? They're really excitable. Right? Maybe you know the type of person who gets really excited about something, and maybe they get really excited about, about God, about church, about Jesus, about the Bible, about evangelism, whatever. They get super excited about it. Right? And then after a while, fizzle out. They fade out because really their trust was not in Jesus Christ. Their trust was in, this is an awesome experience. I've never been to church. It's so cool. I've never had this experience. I've never, and their trust is all on their experience. And that's why we sang the song tonight, The Solid Rock, where it says Christ is our solid rock. He's the foundation. He's the thing that we're built upon. It's not anything that's going to change. It's all upon Jesus Christ. So here's what I want you to write down for point number one. I know it took us a while to get there, but I want you to test your faith. If anything... There is, you can learn from the parable of the soils when it comes to soil number two in the shallow soil. It's that I want you to test your faith. I could tell you this, but notice in the parable, this happens to it automatically, right? They don't have to have the testing go on to test their faith. This happens based on how they react at school, how they react at home, what happens when they leave camp. They're tested by the world. What I'd like you to do, or at least think through right now, is how your faith has been tested and what you find out. A lot of people have their faith tested and they just never think about it. Have you ever thought about um, testing? You, you guys won't do that for a while. Um, do you like tests? Okay, okay. Ra- raise your hand if you like tests. All right. Raise your hand if you don't like tests. All right. That's what I thought. That's what I thought. What if I told you What if I told you that tests were an awesome advantage to not having tests? Tests are a huge advantage. You know why? Yeah, Ryan thinks it's true. Uh, They must be right. Here's the deal. Tests are a good thing because you understand that if you never took a test in school, do you know what grade you'd be in? You'd be in like kindergarten or preschool. You would never move on. Have you ever thought about that? Tests are the, the hurdles. Tests are the things that you have to have and so that you can move to the next grade. You, like, that's why this whole like, school getting canceled thing, like, you want to go back to school. And you don't want to go back to school. I know during summertime, right? I, I heard the rumor, right? I heard July is going to be a... No. <laughs> Actually, I have no idea. Whatever. I'm going to stop talking about stuff I'm not sure about. Um, especially not what's as important as, like, what's, my, what's the Saddleback school schedule. Anyway, uh, tests are a good thing. Trust me, you want it. Because let's say you guys don't go back to school until the fall. Guess what grade you're going to be in next fall? You ever thought about that? You're still going to be in eighth grade. You're still going to be in seventh grade. You won't go to high school. Have you ever Have you thought about that? Now you're freaked out. Okay, sorry. I know. Sorry, that's not what I was trying to do. What I was trying to do, though, was show you that tests are a good thing. You want to take the test. You want to take, you want to move from one thing to another. Here's the thing that, that God's word says in James 1. 
It actually says that tests are something that God loves to give to his people as a blessing, as a good thing. Are tests good? No, I'm never excited to take tests. You might not be excited to take tests other than to think, well, (laughs) once I take the test, it's over, right? That's the only exciting thing about tests, being done with tests, right? But here's the deal. What God says through James in James 1 is he says that you should count it joy when you meet testings, when you meet trials of various kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. There's a lot of wind that goes on up here in the mountains, a lot of wind that goes on where there's trees. Have you ever thought about how much pressure is built up on these trees when they're being pushed against with these big leafy branches? Why do they stand up? Why do they stand up? Because they're strong, right? But not just because they're strong, because they have roots. Here's the problem. Here's the problem. Soil number two has no roots. It's shallow. That's the issue. There's no strength. So when it gets pushed over, it's delicate. It's fragile. Right? If you had a tree with no roots, all you'd have to do is kick it over and make gravity, you know, pull the CG from like right here to like right here, and then it's falling over, right? Uh, anyway, that is for your physics people, right? All you got to do is knock it over like a big log on the ground, just like let's just push it over, kick it over. That's not how it works with a tree, right? Because trees got roots because they get pushed on side to side from the wind. You know what happens when trees get pushed on? Right? They get strong. You know trees, if you grow them in a greenhouse where there's no wind, you know what happens? If you try to plant them out in the real world, they're not strong because they've never been tested. They've never been pushed back and forth by the wind. The roots haven't needed to go deep. Here's the thing. In our world, our roots need to go deep. And anyone who's a shallow soil type person is not going to make it. He says that testing of your faith produces steadfastness. That's strength. That's strength of putting yourself in the ground, so to speak. It's being in the same place, immovable, steadfastness. It says, and let steadfastness have its full effect that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. I'm asking you tonight for point number one, to test your faith. I want you to think this through. Test your faith. What does that mean? Well, I want to tell you some things. I know the big idea tonight is tell the difference between a positive response and the right response. Sometimes we can get confused by thinking things about our response to the gospel. Because it's positive, it means that we're saved. It means that we're a Christian. So the next, all the subpoints for points number one and two are all going to be two ideas that do not equal each other. Okay? You'll, you'll see it in a minute. Here's what it looks like. Here's the first one I want you to write down. When it comes to the first soil, right, when it comes to testing your faith, relief doesn't equal forgiveness. I'll explain that in a minute. Relief does not equal forgiveness. Relief does not equal forgiveness. If you think through the question, am I a Christian? Hopefully one of the things you'll think through is, am I forgiven of my sin? Because that's really what it means to be a Christian. That my sins are forgiven. That I won't go to hell when I die. That I can go to heaven because Jesus has earned a perfect life for me and paid for my sins. That's kind of at the core of what it means to be a Christian. So I want you to think this question through. Are you forgiven? When were you forgiven? What happened when you were forgiven? If you never asked for forgiveness, right, you're, not, you're not forgiven. Right? Some of you have never asked God for forgiveness. You don't think you need forgiveness. Right? For some of you. Most of you know, yeah, I need forgiveness. But if you've never asked God for forgiveness, if you've never prayed, have you ever thought about this? If you've never prayed, you're not a Christian. Because right? the first thing a real Christian does is pray. They're asking God for forgiveness. They're asking God for salvation. They're asking God to take all that Jesus did in being a perfect person and give that to them. 
and all that Jesus did in, in paying for sin and taking our sin. That's what it means at the beginning, at least, to be a Christian. And that continues forever. But sometimes we can mistake being relieved and feeling better about ourselves for forgiveness. I turned you to this verse last night, but I want you to look at it on the get, again. Romans 1.18 says that the wrath of God, which is an interesting statement, the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness. Basically saying God has made clear what he likes, God has made clear what he doesn't like, and God has made clear that he is going to come back and he's going to judge every wrong thing. He's going to make every wrong thing right. It says it's revealed against the unrighteousness of men, so people, men and women, humans. It says, and this is what many of them do. They suppress the truth. They push down the truth. Remember that idea with the, with the trash can last night that we talked about? We can push down the truth. We can, with our sin, push it down, push it down, push it down. We're not really making the situation better, but certainly if you're putting stuff in the trash can, it feels a little bit better, doesn't it? To push it down and there's some room to put more stuff in, right? To suppress the truth and push it down. If you don't feel bad about your sin, right? That might mean that you're a forgiven person in that, I'm relieved. I I don't have to go to hell when I die. But some of you don't feel bad for your sin, but that doesn't mean you're right with God. And does that make sense? It just because you don't feel bad about your sin and you don't go to sleep every night freaked out that you're not a Christian, just because you feel comfortable right now doesn't mean that you're really a Christian. It doesn't. Because look what Paul says about all the non-Christians. They feel fine too. Right? Why do they feel fine? Because they just keep pushing on the truth. They keep sinning. And what he says there is they actually push down that God sees what they do. In Romans 1, there's a group of people that he describes that they think God doesn't even see what we do. I don't even need to believe in God because he's not, he doesn't even care what I do. He doesn't care what I say. He doesn't care what I look at. He doesn't care where I go. He doesn't care what I say to my parents. He doesn't care my, about my obedience. He doesn't care about my grades. He doesn't care about any of that. They suppress the truth about God because of their unrighteousness, because they want to keep doing sin. Just because you're relieved doesn't mean that you're forgiven. Just because you don't feel bad about your sin doesn't mean that you're forgiven. The next thing that our passage says is that you can be excited about God. You can be excited about the gospel, but that doesn't mean that you're going to keep going. doesn't mean you're going to really be saved. Now, enthusiasm, we all know enthusiastic people, right? People who are really excited about everything. If you don't, you should meet our leader, Joel Andrews, he's really excited. Do you see him guarding that uh, that table right out here? With the oh man, that's scary, man. I was I was just watching at that point. I didn't even jump in the game. I jumped in the soccer game today, but I didn't even jump into that game. But I, I was like, whoa, this is this is intense. He's enthusiastic, right? Um, if I did that, I was thinking through. I told somebody if I did what Joel did out there with the with the thing, and I just was running around, I would go back to the cabin and pass out. Okay, I would just, I would have no endurance. I could not do it. I could not keep going if I did what he did. Anyway, uh, we can be enthusiastic, right? And we all know enthusiastic people, and it's great to be enthusiastic. And actually, that's the right response, to be enthusiastic about the things that God likes, and to be enthusiastic about being a Christian. But at the beginning of your time as a Christian, some of you think, okay, I remember I professed faith in Christ. I said I became a Christian a year ago, or two years ago, or six months ago, right? And if I asked you, are you still living that repentant life that you said you would? Right? You might say, well, no, but hey, guess what? I was really excited back then, though. Like, it was so good, like, for a day, 
or a week or, or a month. Like I was really doing good back then. The Bible doesn't really let us ask that question. How excited were you back then? The Bible says, what are you doing now? Are you, are you enduring? Are you keep doing the right thing? Are you keep feeling sorrow for your sin? Are you keep repenting of your sin? You might be excited. That doesn't mean you're saved. Here's what Hebrews 3 says. It says it actually really strongly. It says that you've come to share in Christ if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. There's a lot of people who have a lot of confidence in Christ right away. But over time, because they're that shallow soil, they just lose it over time. Because, right, and we haven't even gotten to the reason why, but the reason why is ultimately because they're excited about being excited. They're excited about being excited. They're enthusiastic because they're enthusiastic. They're not trusting in Christ, because if they trusted in Christ, they'd be firm until the end, because guess what? Jesus doesn't change his mind and come take back your Christianity card, you know, after 10 years of being in it, say, hey, you can't be a Christian anymore. That's not what he does. He's the same. He's promised that if, if you're saved, you're saved forever. That doesn't change. You might say, well, what about the people who walk away? First John two nineteen. This is what it says about them. It says that they went out from us. So we're talking about a group of Christians, some people, they left the church. They left Jesus. They said, I'm not even a Christian anymore. They went out from us, but they were not of us. Does it say they're not of us now, but they used to be? It says, no, they were not. Not even back then. They weren't even real Christians back then. We didn't know that at the time. We couldn't see it. It's a lot like you put seed in soil. It's like, I don't know if this is going to be great soil or not. We've got to wait and see. Same thing for those people. It says, but they... For they had not been of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out that it might become plain that they are all not of us. Notice even what he says there. He says it's actually helpful that fake Christians end up walking away from the church. It's helpful. Because some people, not everybody, but most people who are not real Christians will eventually walk away. The Bible also says that some will stay. And some will stay until the end, and they will keep going to church, and they will have kids, and they will raise them in the church, and their kids will become Christians, and maybe their spouse is a Christian, and they are not Christians. Jesus says that at the end, he's going to have to separate the wheat from the chaff, which is a way of saying, you know, there's a, with a plant, there's the good part and the bad part. Reminds me of um, corn on the cob, right? You ever see corn on the cob um, with the cob, right? When it's actually on the cob, right? You got to, you got to, what's it called? Uh, husk it? Wow. You shuck the, the corn, right? And you take the husk off. That's hard to say, man. Um, anyway, uh, you separate the good part from the bad part. Jesus said that I'm going to do that for my church one day, that I'm going to take the the, the bad part, the people who are not really saved, I'm going to take them out of the end. In First John, John says, people walk away, and it's not because they walk away, and it's not because that Jesus wasn't willing to save them. They walk away because they were never really saved. They didn't walk away as people who were saved at one point and then stop. The shallow soil, people who are excited for a little bit, but when their excitement isn't as exciting, and it's not as cool to be a Christian, they walk away. Once you ask yourself the question, could that possibly be me? Could that be me? Here's the hard part. 
um, it's not that easy to tell with a person who has just responded. That's really hard to tell, which is why, um, by the way, that I, when I talk to a lot of you, I, what I tell you, if you're professing faith, you know what, what I say and your leaders say? That's awesome. I'm glad. Let's keep bearing fruit. Let's keep seeing how this goes. We're not going to, the second you say, oh, I'll respond positive to the gospel, we'll say, great, you're in, you're safe. Like, I can't say that, right? I couldn't say that about myself. You, you shouldn't say that about yourself because, like, look, like, look, look what the text says. It says that so many people ex- respond excited and positive. That doesn't mean they're real Christians. There's another group that responded excited. It was these thorny soil people. It says that they were choked out, if you look at verse 22, Matthew 13, 22, hopefully you still turn there. It says, as for what was sown among the thorns, this is the one who hears the word, right? They accept it, but the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches choke the word and it proves unfruitful. Two things that he says right here, at least in Matthew, the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches. Things that the world has to offer that are really worth caring about, according to the world at least. How you look, the way you're dressed, the places you go, the words you say, the social media you have, the following you you amass, cares of the world, and the deceitfulness of riches, that money's going to make me happy, that uh, getting a lot of stuff, it's going to be really awesome, that's when I'll be happy. Right? And what older people, and maybe your parents, you might have heard them say, like, if I get this job, then everything will be good. Or if I advance in, in my company, or if I, you know, really get good grades, or whatever it is, like that's that's when I'll I'll really be happy. Because all that chokes out the word. People hear, respond, and then they change their mind. Point number two: I want you to write this down. If you learn anything from tonight, I want you to value salvation more than your sin. Value salvation more than your sin. What I mean by value is you look at something and you see that's worth it or not. The reason that a lot of people in junior high, at least, say, I'm not going to become a Christian is because they see the benefits of becoming a Christian and then they see the benefits of staying in their sin. And what they think is, sin's going to be better. Sin is going to be better. I, I know these leaders at church. I know what they say. Like, I know Pastor John, he says that. I know the pastors at Compass. I know they say, like, you should become a Christian, but, like, Oh, like, it could be so cool, though. Like, it would be so good. I, there's all these things I want to do that if I, if I became a Christian, I just couldn't do them. I'd have to give them up. Oh, I don't want to do that. Maybe that's how a lot of you feel. Maybe you've even said that. I want you to flip those priorities because what's more important, and it's hard to describe, it's hard to even convince you if you convinced otherwise, but salvation is so much more important than your sin, so much better. There's some responses that the thorny soil feels that is not genuine. Let me correct that. It is genuine. They feel something genuine, but it doesn't mean that their response is what Jesus wants. Think this through. If I asked you, are you a Christian? Are you sure you're saved? You might say, well, here's one reason I think I'm saved, because I felt bad about my sin. That's great. you, You better feel bad about your sin. I feel bad about my sin, too. I feel really bad. But here's the deal. Feeling bad about your sin does not mean that you're really a Christian. It's not the same as repentance. And I want you to turn to this passage. And I'm not even going to put it up on the screen because I want all of you to turn here. First, 2 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 10. 2 Corinthians 7, 10. 
Paul says that you can be really sad about your sin and then not do anything about it. You can feel bad. Feel bad that you get caught. You can feel bad just like a little kid feels bad. You ever catch a kid lying to you? Right? Maybe your little sibling or something. They tell you something that's not true. And then they're really bold-faced about it. And they're like, yeah, it didn't happen. And then you like start pressing them. And you show them that, they, that you know the truth. And then they just start crying right, when they get caught. Have you seen a little kid just start crying when they get caught for something? Right? It's like, why didn't, you feel, why didn't you feel bad like two seconds ago? Right? You, you, oh, you felt bad because you got caught. Right? That's the idea. You feel bad because you get caught. That's what Paul's going to say here in 2 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 10. 2 Corinthians 7, 10. Almost there. Turn past it. 2 Corinthians 7.10 says this. For godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret. Whereas worldly grief produces death. He's breaking grief or feeling bad into two categories. He says you can have godly grief or worldly grief. Some people feel really, really bad about their sin because they got caught and they don't want to do it again and they don't want to be punished and they feel bad, right? He's describing that with the words worldly grief. They feel really bad. They don't want to do it again. But that doesn't lead to anything. It says it actually leads to death. But there's another type of regret or sadness or sorrow that really that leads to life. It says it's a godly grief. It produces a repentance. For see what earnestness this godly grief has produced in you. This is verse 11. But also what eagerness to clear yourself. What indignation. What fear. What longing, what zeal, what punishment. At every point, you have proved yourselves innocent in the matter. That's this is what he's saying. He's saying some of you have confessed to your leader or you've talked to your parents or whatever that you lie. That that's a sin that you do, that you lie. Okay. Maybe for you it's another sin. That might be for some of you. You lie. You confess that sin. You say, oh, you know what? I've, I recognize that I've been chronically lying, not telling the truth. And lying to my leader, lying to my parents, lying to my friends. I just, I just, every time I'm, I just tell lies. Let's say that's your sin. You could feel bad about that. You could even confess that. But if you continue to lie, are you really repentant? Did you really feel bad? Maybe, yeah, maybe you felt bad. I don't want to discount how you felt. You might have felt bad, but that doesn't mean you repented. Here's what a repentant person would do if they lied they would do what it says in verse 11. Earnestness. They, they try so hard to tell the truth. Would they always tell the truth in every situation? Probably not. But they would do a lot better. What eagerness to clear yourselves. People, oh, I confess that I was lying. I want to show people that I'm going to tell the truth. I'm, I'm going to show people. I, I'm going to try so hard. What indignation. Like, I'm mad. I'm mad that I, I'm not going to lie anymore. I'm so mad that I just lied. That's what you feel. What fear? You say, I don't want to do that. That's freaky. If I, if I keep lying, right, I'm not a repentant person. I need I, I have some fear there. What longing? Oh, man, I just want to tell the truth so bad. I don't want to lie anymore. What zeal? Right, getting really excited and zealous about it. What punishment? At every point, you have proved yourselves innocent in the matter. Every chance you get to tell the truth or tell a lie, what's this repentant person about lying going to do? What are they going to do? They're, they're going to tell the truth. They're going to prove themselves innocent in the matter. That's what repentance looks like. Is there regret in there? Do you feel bad? Totally. But is it the same thing as repentance? 
No, repentance is even more than feeling regret. It's turning. Repentance. It's a word that the Greek generals used to tell their armies to turn around. I don't know if I've ever told you that. But it's the idea that if you got all these armies marching forward, they're marching on a plane, they're about to take down some army. Right? If, the, if the general says, repent, what would happen? The whole group, they'd pick up, turn around, and retreat and go the other way. That's what repentance is. If I say I, I'm repenting of my line, that doesn't say I feel bad about my line and I don't want to do it again. That's not what it is. Repentance is a process that happens over time. The decision starts there, yeah, totally, that you decide I'm not going to lie anymore. But your repentance happens when you tell the truth. When you're tempted to lie to get out of the situation, you tell the truth. When it'd be more convenient for you to lie, you tell the truth. When you want to cheat on an assignment, you tell the truth and you don't do it. Right? That's what repentance looks like. I kind of mentioned this, but here's another thing that the thorny soil doesn't always understand that resolutions, saying I'm going to do the right thing, is not the same as perseverance, continuing to do the right thing. Making promises to do better is not the same thing as following through. You probably know this if you've made New Year's resolutions. It's March 14th. Have you kept all your New Year's resolutions? Uh, yeah, okay, well, we'll just wait till September 14th. Well, I'll ask again. Resolutions are great, and you should make them, and they're awesome, and they're cool, because then maybe you can set goals and maybe achieve some more goals. But here's the thing. You can make a resolution, but that's not the same as perseverance. You need perseverance. You need to keep doing the right thing in order to meet those resolutions. You're in Matthew, or you're actually Second Corinthians 7. Luke 18, or Luke 8 is another telling of this parable where Luke tells the story just like Matthew tells the story. But what Luke says is he gives three words I think are awesome that are helpful. It says, for, and as for what was... What fell among the thorns, they are those who hear, but as they go on their way, they are choked by the cares and riches and pleasures of life. Those three things. The cares, the riches, and the pleasures of life. Three things. It says, and their fruit does not mature. Cares. There are people who, when they say, I want to become a real Christian, they might mean that, but what they do is they say, okay, I'm going to become a real Christian, but also, like, I'm going to, I'm going to do that. But also there's all these things that people at school do that I want to do at the same time. I want to make sure, even though it's sinful, I want to make sure I'm kind of doing both. One foot in, one foot out. The cares of the world, what the world cares about. Looking good, fashion, being liked, being funny. All those things. The riches of the world. We kind of talked about that. Always wanting the latest and greatest, the new thing. Pleasures of life. Wanting to overindulge in all the good things that God gives. Or being lazy. Not doing the work that God's called you to do. Just kind of enjoying the pleasures of life. Says those are people whose fruit does not mature. The solution is found in 1 John. I think 1 John 2.15 says something helpful. It says don't love the world. That's, that's really the solution. When he says don't love the world, he means don't be connected to it. Not don't know it, don't be in the world. No, he means don't have your heart be tied to it. Your heart loving it. And when it comes to what you love more, is it obeying God or doing what I want? He says, don't let your heart love the world so much that you're not going to obey God anymore. That you're going to do that stuff instead of this stuff. He says, don't love the world or the things in the world. 
If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. Basically, if you love your friends, if you love your popularity more than God, right? it says the love of God is not even in you. It's scary. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, and the pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. And the world is passing away along with its desires. But whoever does the will of God abides forever. No one works to put thorns and weeds in their backyard to grow up and choke their tomato plants, right? They don't do that. There's no reason to do that. If you put thorns in your backyard and try to grow the thorns along, unless you like are selling thorns, I don't know who sells thorns, um, on roses, I don't know, maybe. You don't grow those if you want to be successful in growing this plant. What James says to a group of Christians, in James 4.4, he says, says, you guys are cheating on God. He says, didn't we agree that we were going to love God as real Christians? I thought that's what we were going to do. But he calls them adulterous people, which means they're in a promise relationship with God, a covenantal relationship with God. But while they're in that covenantal relationship with God, they're expressing their love towards the people they have not made a promise to. And if you're a real Christian, you said, I'm, I'm going to follow Christ. I'm going to do what God says. And I'm going to not love the world. It says, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Right? It's even like friendship. I can't even be friends. Like, I, can't I at least be friends with the world? I don't have to be married to the world. I don't have to be married to God in the world. But like, can I at least just be friends with the world? He says, whoever is a friend of the world is at enmity with God. You're fighting against God. Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. If you didn't understand what he said the first time, he says it again the second time. I know tonight we talked about two different soils, two different heart responses, and last night was one of those heart responses. People who say, I've heard the gospel. I know how I can be forgiven. I know how I can be saved, but I don't want it. That was last night. Tonight are people who say, I want it, and maybe a long time ago, or last week, maybe, I don't know. Say, I'm I'm a real Christian now. But the fruit's not there. And they're not persevering. They felt bad, but they're not repentant. They felt relieved because they didn't feel bad about their sin anymore, but that didn't mean they were forgiven. I know this is a hard one. I think this is the hardest sermon um, of the weekend because you kind of have to figure out, am I one of these two? I know last night is pretty point blank. I'm either the hard heart or I'm something else. But tonight, I want you to think through, do you think that maybe... My heart is represented in soil number two or three. Am I a shallow soil person who just kind of wants to hear some things about God and and have him solve my problems, but I don't really want to serve him? And when stuff gets hard, like I'll just give up on Jesus and move on to the next thing. Or or maybe a thorny soil that, yeah, you want to serve God and you receive the word with joy, but you love the world. And because you love the world, you make yourself an enemy of God. I want you to think that through. Tonight in small groups, you're going to be turning to Hebrews chapter 12 and 2 Corinthians 7 again. You're also going to turn to 1 John. I want you to think through all that we talked about tonight. And I want you again, like I told you last night and like we talked about this morning, I want you to ask God for clarity on where you're at. I want you to ask God for wisdom so that you can find out, am I one of these bad soils? Tomorrow we're going to talk about the good soil. I trust that many of you are the good soil right now. Some of you can be the good soil tonight. If you finally say, I'm going to repent, I'm not just going to feel bad. 
You finally say, I'm not just going to make resolutions. I'm just not going to make promises to God that, I'm gonna, that I can't keep. I'm actually going to persevere. I'm going to make plans to repent when I get home and prove that repentance. Let's pray for that right now. God, please help us see where we're at. As we often say, just to know where we're at before you. I ask you that you'd be so gracious to do that. I know that you you could leave us feeling blind or sad or not knowing what's going on, but I just ask you that you would be gracious to this group of students that when we think through what it means to really repent and really turn from our sins and not just feel bad, and when we think about enthusiasm versus endurance, I pray that we would reflect well and honestly about our lives, that we wouldn't lie to ourselves tonight just to make ourselves feel better and to go on with our nights. I pray that we would take pause knowing that this is a really helpful time to take pause. It seems the whole world is taking pause right now. I pray that these students would take pause too. I think where they stand with you, that's the most important thing in this world. I pray that you give them clarity and wisdom on that. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.